Hi and welcome to the podcast, you are having tea with Alice. This week's episode is a solo episode with me answering questions from the Patreon. I think there's some really interesting questions, I hope I provide some very interesting answers. I may not, you may notice from my voice that I'm not 100% well. Um, I I was so congratulating myself on having gotten through the full month of Edinburgh without getting sick and then I collapsed like an idiot slash normal human being who's been working for a month without a break. Uh, in a city full of people who are licking microphones that they then shove into your face. Uh, I don't mean licking. If you are in um, Melbourne, I am filming Savage at the Malthouse Theatre on the 10th of September. It is a big thing um, for me. I would really like you there. I I, I really would. Um, There's a two-for-one code for Patreons if you contact me. If you cannot afford tickets and would like comps, email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. And if I have promised you comps, um, do remind me, uh, please, in the next week or so, because I am a little bit overwhelmed at the moment. Um, coming out of uh, doing Edinburgh and all of the admin that is gets put off during Edinburgh, Please do feel free to remind me um, I, I, if I I, I would I, I, I want to give you your free tickets is my point. Um, all right, I think that's all of the stuff that I have to to plug. Um, I, I recorded Mythos for the ABC, and that will be coming out as a free podcast at some point, and I'll I'll keep you in the loop on that. Of course, the trilogy available as always for free. Uh, here are the questions and my answers. Uh, Steve asks, what part of the Fringe run surprised you in a pleasant way and what do you think is the top life lesson that you took away from this year's festival? Um, Steve, I don't know. Um, What surprised me in a pleasant way? It's always every year an unsurprising surprise when you get to know someone who you quite liked or who you didn't know and then they become somebody who you really value, uh, where you see an act you haven't seen before, where you... Uh, walk down a street you hadn't been before. Edinburgh is this sort of Escher sketch, involuted loop of ups and downs and staircases and alleyways, and there's always these new beautiful views into what looks like a sort of a Piranesi picture. Um, so, yes, I, I can't say that there were any surprising surprises, um, but just the people. I mean, Laura Lex particularly was a delight to get to know this festival and I've always thought I'd like her. I've always liked her in passing, as it were, and I've never really had the opportunity to work with her more closely. So that was um, that was really lovely. And then also just living with Laura and her husband, James. Um, it's always nice to have, have my bestie around. Um, the top life lesson that I took away from this year's festivals is I really, really need to... Um, organise to go out. Otherwise, I don't do any of the kind of finger guns logistics, the the behind-the-scenes logistics. Um, So uh, when I say logistics, I mean, you know, schmoozing, that kind of thing. Um, So I I tend not to do that if I don't force myself to. So that's the lesson. I don't know if I've learned that lesson, but I became aware of that lesson when I continually didn't go out. Uh, Emily asks, I know you were a lawyer for a year and a day. What was your tipping point that made you decide to prioritise happiness over security? That's a really good question, Emily. I don't have a... I don't have a single tipping point. I have a number of tipping points. There were a few cases that I was involved in where my personal 
ethics um, and my professional ethical obligations felt like they didn't jibe 100%, sort of cases where my job as a lawyer was to protect the interests of my client, but I didn't feel comfortable with who my client was. And part of the job of a lawyer is that you have to represent everyone. Uh, there were other things about it was mainly the corporate environment. I wrote a whole show about this uh, at one point called Everyone's a Winner, um, and I may revive that at some point. But uh, I talk about, among other things, in orientation week, my very first week, uh, they started talking about CLMs, career-limiting moves. And I said, what's a CLM? And they said, it's a career-limiting move. And I said, yeah, but what does it look like? And they said, you'll know it when you see it. And I said, but you have to give us, like, an example, right, of what a CLM would be or what it might be a CLM. And they said, oh, you'll know it when you see it. And I said, that's kind of a bit fascistic, right? You don't know what you've done wrong until you've done it. Um, And the lady who was in in charge of that orientation, the partner, partner just looked at me like she wanted to murder me. And I think at that point I had some suspicion that I wasn't going to... I wasn't going to last. Uh, and a year and a day felt like a good fairy tale number. It was also you need to get your practicing certificate, which I kind of wanted to do at that point. Why not? Um, so I hope that answers your question, Emily. Um, so what else do we have? Um, I'm seeing some interest in you from the US, Alice. Do you have hopes for some performance work in the US this year? Um Maybe not this year. I currently, there's a really nice person uh, who is a Bugle listener who has offered to help me out with some of the um, admin side, which is the sort of very expensive side, and I need to collect 10, um, 10 letters of recommendation from people who are leaders in their field saying that I am a leader in my field or that I'm doing something sort of unique and special to apply for a visa. So once I get that in train, then I will apply for a visa. Then I will organise US uh, dates and um, things. Henry Bushell says, do you have any gauge on the demographics that come to see you or consume your content? It was half on on my mind after seeing you in Edinburgh where it seemed like there were considerably more men than women in the audience. Uh, but I wondered if that's something you've noticed, and I hope it goes without saying how wonderful the shows have been. This is a question I've come across before, uh, Henry. I, I'm interested in that. I don't, I don't think that is the demographic ba- breakdown of my audiences. If I look at ticket sales, it does seem to be about 50-50, and when I look at the demographics for my podcast listenership, it also does seem to be about 50-50. But certainly the number of people who ask me questions, um, the people who kind of engage with me during shows is um male-led so for example of the I put out a a call for questions um and from my patrons and uh the most of the questions seem to come from male names but that doesn't reflect the people who contribute to my work I'm not sure what that is um I haven't found an answer to why that is why men seem more willing to engage with me maybe I seem menacing or scary or uh you know maybe there's some entitlement there I I really don't know I don't want to project someone else's motivations on it I do quite um in terms of where I think I fit in the landscape of kind of podcasts and 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 things I think there is something that I can offer to men that other things are not offering to men um which is a kind of a 
like if you think about the 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 new atheists and the intellectual dark web people there's a there's a there's a lot of really appealing things about that school of of discussion and thought but i feel like it it lacks a an organ of some kind that maybe i bring to the table or maybe a bridge between uh, the two sides where i feel maybe part of what the intellectual dark web has failed in is that they've kind of let their presumed opposition dictate the terms of the fight dictate the ground on which the argument is happening so rather than talking about any science it could be any science or any reality or anything that about which we are deluded it gets um cornered into the discussion of the day and and you're it becomes about whatever it happens to be race or gender or all these things that I think are interesting and they're fun intellectual games. I quite like doing comedy about them, but I don't think they're the most important arguments we should be having right now. Really. I really think that we should be, you know, if we're talking about fact and we're talking about reason and we're talking about things that are best for humanity overall, constantly arguing about whether we should care about race or gender I think that's a, a a side loop. I don't know. I've gotten sidetracked. I'm sorry. My brain isn't 100%. The, I think the answer to the question is I don't know. I don't think that is correct. Um, I, I tend to have a relatively even-handed audience. When I look at the email addresses or when I look at the purchasing details, it does seem to be, and I'm not reading your credit card numbers, I mean like the names, but it does seem to be pretty even uh, so I don't know. Occasionally there was one night in Edinburgh where it seemed like 90% men, um, but then there's other nights where it seems more women. I re- yeah, I don't have an answer. I I don't know if, if I appeal to both genders equally. I, I like the idea that I would, and the numbers and names seem to reflect that, but when it comes to things like engagement, public engagement, it does seem to be men. That is also reflected in the number of people who try to follow me home. That's a joke but also not really. Uh, Jonathan Lung asks, my question is, why is Pancake the Hedgehog the best ever? This is uh, Jonathan, who I is on my Patreon Skype uh, conversation level, and uh, he has just the most adorable hedgehog. It's like a little albino hedgehog, and it's grumpy, and it lives in a bag. Um, he asks, the real serious question that he asks is, do you immediately start thinking about next year's Edinburgh or do you decide to take it day by day and see if it's a viable option later on? Uh, good question, Jonathan. I, it's an, that is, people do it differently. So you can, the applications for the Adelaide Fringe open during Edinburgh. If you want to, you can do it in a cycle. You can go from one fringe to the next fringe to the next fringe to the next fringe to the next festival to the next comedy festival to the next etc. This year and last year I chose not to do Adelaide in part because I wanted to break down that sense of a cycle a little. I wanted it to be a choice rather than a habit. Um, also, I don't make very much money in Adelaide, um, and for the amount of stress that it is, sort of, it's a five-week-long festival, and you might make not a lot out of it. Uh, it's a good place to run in the show, but also then it isn't because you can't guarantee audience numbers. There's people who's been, who've been going to Adelaide for ten years, brilliant, award-winning comedians with five-star reviews up 
Thuazu, people like Alexis Dubis, who plays Marcel Lucant, people like Brendan Burns, who won the Edinburgh Award, uh, who a couple of years ago were just like, I can't fill a room. I can't get people into a room and I'm losing money. And there was something about that that seemed very disillusioning to me, that there's something about that festival that's become overly centralised for what is purportedly a fringe festival. Um, So I've taken a step back from Adelaide. I do want to do shows in Adelaide because I have good people in Adelaide um, and I'll be talking to Craig Egan who runs the Rhino Room and see what I can organise in terms of gigs when I get back to uh, Australia. I will have to renew my visa in November so I don't know how long that'll take but it certainly means I'll be in Australia for a little while um, and I'll be doing gigs there and I will try and include Adelaide in those gigs. Um, a lot of people do ask me this. This is sort of a generalised ASCII answer, answer, which is when will you come to this city or when will you come to my town or when will you come to the US or when will you come to here or there? The answer is I will come anywhere. I will come absolutely anywhere if someone else does the logistics. Um, I'm not good at that kind of you have to book a room, you have to make sure the advertising is in place, you have to get an audience in. Um, I can't do that on my own budget Uh, so I either need a manager or I need someone who runs a club or you can chat to somebody if you have a local club send them an email tell them to bring me out all that kind of thing um if if it uh, pen I think pen and teller I read somewhere do a really cool thing where it's kind of like almost a individualized kickstarter people but they you know people will put in and once they get a certain number of people who are committing to coming and buying tickets to a particular date Uh, in a particular place they'll go of course they have a massive audience so that is logistically much easier I sort of dream of a day either when I can do that on my own small scale or when I am at a bigger scale if I ever get to a bigger scale where that would be possible to just go oh apparently ding 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 tips over in three weeks I'm going to be in wherever it is uh, Montreal or uh, some other city so I mean no one asked me that but a lot of people have asked me that, so I, uh, I've answered that. Uh, Siddharth asks, I've seen you talk, or Twitter, tweet instead of talk, about how saying something isn't funny because it's offensive is bad strategy because something can be both offensive and a well-crafted joke, and conversely how something offensive or hurtful being funny isn't exactly a great justification for saying it. Would love to hear you expand on that and also get your thoughts on famous comics like Anthony Jeselnik, Frankie Boyle, or Bill Burr, who have a very dark comedic sensibility. Um... So I I just, it frustrates me when people go, oh, that's not funny and it's it's offensive. It's not, that's like saying something, that's not loud, it's blue. Those are two completely different vectors. And you, one is a sort of a moral uh, vector, offense, offense, me, if you, if you consider offense as harm, which some people don't, there's a very good, um, uh, there's a very good bit by Steve Hughes about that, about, well, so what? If you're offended, offence is offensive is offence. I tend to fall slightly more on the compassionate end. I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but I do think it's important to be confronted occasionally, to be troubled, to be disturbed. And I think comedy is a nice way to balance out the disturbance, to, to balance out the challenge, to, to sugarcoat the pill almost, um, so that if... It's important for someone to question their 
assumptions, which I think is important for all of us to question our working assumptions. Comedy is a neat way to make it less less of an existential crisis to a certain extent. It becomes a fun exercise. It, it, there's an appeal to it. You, you, it's like when there were those little... I don't know if you had these little vitamin C tablets when you were a kid that were in the shape of astronauts, and uh, we would take them, and because they were so delicious... We really wanted to take them. So I like the idea of making the process of challenging yourself, questioning yourself, you know, really being um, intellectually rigorous. I like the idea of making intellectual rigour fun, engaging, appealing, something that you want to do. And and that's the game that I like to play or I try to like to, you know, I try to play with, with my comedy at least a little bit. I also think there is a moral value in things that are just funny, that are just silly and funny and that's a beautiful thing and it's an important thing that we can just laugh. I think it's also an important thing to be able to laugh at terrible things. Uh, I think that's a very human thing. It's a very human urge. It, 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 the nature of making any kind of structure around grief or horror whether it's a funeral um, ritual or a joke or a poem or a song or a piece of art, the nature of making that structure around something so extreme gives you back a little control or the illusion of control, which is as important in the human brain as control itself. The feeling that you have a handle on it even if it's just the right turn of phrase to describe how awful you feel, can give you a sense of control. Now, that said, um, there are jokes that are cruel, there are jokes that are unpleasant, there are jokes that are bullying, um, and they might also be funny. If you think the moral value of something being funny is higher than the moral value of someone being hurt that's where you sit on the scale of, well, it's not offensive, it's funny. You don't mean it's not offensive. You know it's offensive. You mean it's more important for me to get this laugh or to make this joke or for this to be funny than it is that I hurt someone's feelings. And I don't really agree with that, but it depends whose feelings you're hurting. Some people's feelings deserve hurting. Some people's views of the world are offensive to me and the fact that I even stand on stage and speak is offensive to them. I think offensiveness in itself is an almost a meaningless term. If you're talking about sort of an incohate long-term harm, which comes with a lot of kind of um, policing of epithets, that's a different discussion. So if you say using this word is damaging in this way long-term, that's a different discussion for a different day, maybe a different day. But thank you for the question. Uh, Siddharth. Um, so, uh, what is your self-care regimen for during and after the fringe? This is an anonymous questionnaire. Um, are there things fans can do to make these easier? Oh, what a sweetheart. Um, for during and after the fringe, I try to walk, I try to go to the gym. This year I couldn't really do very much because I, I got bitten by a tick and I got tonsillitis literally the day before I went to the fringe. And so I was on antibiotics and I was covered in a rash and I was hallucinating for the first two weeks of the fringe. So I didn't really get into a very good routine. I try to eat healthily, I try to drink a lot of water, I try to get sleep and if I don't get enough sleep in one night I will try to make room for a nap, like put it in my calendar, kind of schedule a nap. 
I try to hang out with good people. I try not to be on social media too much. I try to um, not read reviews. I try to um, turn off my social media apps on the day that the award nominations come out because I don't want to care. I don't want to feel like we're in competition with one another. I try to see as many other things as I can and I do try to walk outside the fringe uh, as often as I can. I'll walk out into the suburbs or I'll walk into Newtown where the, the kind of the hub isn't and remember that there are real people living real lives. Um, and are there things that fans can do to make things easier? Look, um, this is going to sound weird and gross or whatever, I don't know, but the fact that you are, the fact that you come to my shows, the fact that you support me on Patreon, the fact that you listen to this podcast, the fact that you send me emails is huge, is huge. Um, my brother laughs at me often. He's like, oh, you just, you know, you look so happy or you, you've lit up has somebody told you they love you um and it 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 genuinely it lights me up to know that there's people who connect with the work that I do again connect sounds like a really wishy-washy thing to say but um yeah I I'm gonna pause for a second because I'm gonna Hello, sorry, I had to cough and then I forgot what question I was answering. Um, uh, Ellis asks, oh, sorry, Rob, Rob Ellis asks, after listening to the last one with Tiff, I was again so impressed with your clarity of thought and even-handedness of opinion. Have I ever thought of writing it down in a longer essay form or even a collection of extended thoughts in a book? Yes, I have. Uh, unfortunately, I've been writing books for ages, uh, never finishing them. And uh, the problem with the kind of work I do is that it's a lot easier to get something done that will get me paid tomorrow than to get something done that may or may not get me paid in three years' time. So that's one of the things that the Patreon helps me do. It helps me to put aside some time to write um, because I don't have to worry about paying paying the rent um, as much as I used to, which is... Thank you very much to the people who contribute. Um, even at a dollar a month, it, it, it provides me with a much more stable platform and much less panic day to day. And it does let me focus a little more on these kind of long form projects, which will be coming out um, in the next while. Oh. Ellen asks, uh, when I saw your Savage show in the trilogy at Edinburgh last year, I cried like a band during it and in between shows. It was also very funny and I really enjoyed it, but I was wondering how hard is it to tell stories that are so personal and emotional in a stand-up setting? I mean, that's that's the game, right? That's the thing. That's the how... These are stories that I feel are important to tell. They're, they're things that I think are valuable. And there's a kind of a dual thing going on. First of all, how do I get people to listen to these stories? How do I get people to genuinely engage rather than, you know, people... There, there are ways that you can present information that are more or less um, emotional. So people don't cry watching the news for the most part. But you might cry reading a fantasy novel about, you know, mice that aren't even real. And because you open yourself up in different ways to different formats and different forms of media. the way I, I like the way that people open up with comedy and they open up to new ideas and they become open to things that otherwise they might approach in a different way. They might, they might 
if they knew it was a sad play, they'd come in with a particular attitude, with a particular front, with a particular set of uh, tools at hand. I like to um, play with that um, because I think the stories are worth telling and I think it's important for me to tell them in a way that people can hear and and otherwise I wouldn't feel right doing it. And and the way that I think people can hear is this this particular format that I use for, for the trilogy. Um, again, 10th of September, come to it uh, in, in Melbourne if you're there. Uh, are you going to make another trilogy following ethos and mythos? Maybe, maybe is the answer. Uh, do you and Andy talk about cricket? This is about Andy Zaltzman on the Bugle. The World Cup final was awesome. I'm sorry, but as a cricketer, I have to ask. Um, <laughs> I don't really talk to Andy about cricket. He talks to me about cricket. I can play cricket. I have watched much cricket in my life. My father and my brother are big cricket fans. Um, and uh, I am a moderate spin bowler and a decent batter. So I can understand cricket chat, but I don't tend to follow it very closely. Thank you for the question. <laughs> um, what else? What other questions do we have? Um, oh, I don't know if I can answer this one in time. It's clear that your idea of a free market of ideas is, is not and never will be properly free, obviously. It's a lovely ideal. However, looking at the direction of travel with bot-managed Twitter gander, uh, we have a very difficult... I feel like this is one of those questions that is a that is a statement rather than a question. Um, maybe send me this by email and I'll answer it point by point. I think I probably don't have the brain juice to do it right now. But thank you for asking uh, the question, uh, David. I appreciate it very much. Um, Tara asks... Um, what does Tara ask? Ah... Oh. I had a question from a lady that was somewhere here and I just absolutely have forgotten it. Um, so I think uh, I think you can probably tell that I'm winding down um, and I should probably just stop and have a lie down. I may do another episode of this this week because there's plenty of questions that have, um, haven't been answered and I'm slightly self-conscious about a lot of the ones that I've answered so far being by men, even though I have a bunch in my email by women that I can't seem to find at short notice. Um, I will see you in the world. If uh, you have any questions, email me alicerfraser at gmail.com or tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E or message me on the Patreon app. Maybe that's where the messages are. Or um, come to Savage on the 10th of September at the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne. I will be there and I will be better by then and I'm going to have a nap, and you are lovely, and I had a wonderful Edinburgh, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. You're having tea with Alice.
This stop is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day.